and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. This week, James Bond has been struggling to get his Q branch 256-bit AES encrypted VPN work from home <laughs> set up running. So he just sent sensitive information over a phone with a Nokia because, you know, secure, right? <laughs> so I'm your feeling host, James Page from MI6. And this week we are joined by Phil, Lisa, Calvin and Ben. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Sure. This is Phil Nobile from Fangoria. Glad to be here. Uh, this is Dr. Lisa Funnel, Associate Professor at the University of Oklahoma, author of The Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond, and editor of For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond. I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a James Bond-themed uh, YouTube channel that you can find by searching for my name after you've listened to this podcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Ben Williams coming to you from a CGI Nokia. Um, <laughs> I, I write for mi6hq.com and mi6 confidential magazine all right lisa go plug your new podcast oh so i've started a new podcast it is called license to critique it is exploring gender in the world of james bond and beyond and my goal is to really share some of my insights as a professor and some of my research, tackle a range of topics. I've only recorded two episodes and only released one. Um, so I'm really excited about this podcast venture. A, a lot of people have messaged me asking for uh, a little bit more of my insights to share and, and I'm excited and people seem to be really happy and excited about it too. So I think that's why I'm excited. You never know how you're going to be received by by the world out there. So thank you for giving me the chance to plug it. Absolutely. We'll put the link in the description below. As they oh, say. you're as so cool great. Say. I know. I think it's going to be <laughs> listening, listening to you talk and not being able to kind of uh, respond or uh, interrupt or talk over you. Um, <laughs> yell at, just yell at the screen. <laughs> Why are you listening to me, Lisa? <laughs> Beware the reviews is all I'll say. Um, it's Never a wild read the comments. World. Never read the comments, yes. I'm a big fan of not reading comments, so... <laughs> I, I read all of mine. You eventually become numb to it, so it, it, there, there is a, <laughs> a flip side oh. to it as well. Mm. I need to learn from you, Calvin. Teach me your <laughs> Jedi ways. <laughs> um, so this week we're going to do something maybe a little bit more academic and talk about Ooh. the death of the author, which mm. um, I discovered through Lindsay Ellis's YouTube channel a few months ago. And, um, Love her. Big absolutely. Man. So I'm going to try and describe this for anybody who's not familiar, and I'll butcher it, and then you guys can correct me on it. All right. Um, so... Uh, French guy called Roland uh, Barthes in 1967 wrote an essay, Death of the Author. And the concept was that when analyzing any text, and for this podcast, we're going to talk just about Fleming's books um, as a cultural text, we shouldn't be concerned about what the author's intentions were. Is that fair to say? Um, and most of the thing that attracted me to this was that most of the literary analysis of Bond seems to be obsessed with deriving meanings from Fleming's biographies, beliefs, and intentions, mm. um, things he might have been trying to convey, which is structuralism. Um, but death of the author is basically, you know, throw all that out um, completely and just analyze the text for the text. And we'll get on to later probably talking about, well, the meanings derived by the reader and stuff, right? But um, And the different readers. I don't think this has really been discussed much in the world of Fleming because, as I mentioned, it seems to always be about, you know, trying to uncover Fleming's intentions. Um, 
and uncovering meanings from like his experiences, biographies, beliefs, and politics. Um, yeah, so, I think that's fair. Is that I a fair summary? <laughs> and and to hold those texts to the fire, to hold their feet to the fire over over what's perceived to be Fleming's sort of points of view and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does anybody yeah. want to jump in first on that? I mean, there are obviously many many authors who who put themselves front and center um, in their work, um, but very I, I think very few kind of adventure novelists. Uh, for want of a better word, thriller novelists or, or spy novelists tend to uh, tend to put so much of themselves into their work. So this is this is going to be an interesting thing to kind of uh, extract Fleming from from his books because mm. I, I'd be interested to kind of think what, what see what people think of those texts without his particular voice within them. Um, because I think one of the the pleasures of of reading Fleming is is to have a little bit of the the author's voice within it, and I think it's what um, kind of uh, enriches and expands uh, uh, and, and elevates um, a lot of his works over a lot of other spy fiction. Um, so yeah, I'd be very I'd be very keen to kind of see what's left when you when you suck all of, of, of Fleming himself out of them particularly as he obviously was a journalist like that that's his background so you know he goes on holiday to Japan he comes back and that year he writes an adventure based in Japan like and you know he'll write about his own personal experiences and that kind of stuff so i think this is a really fascinating topic to uh, talk about in relation to Fleming, who did, you know, it's, it's very well known, and I, I think it's quite fetishized actually that you know Fleming's role in British intelligence in World War Two and parallels that that may or may not have had with some of you know what uh, what Bond um, experiences in some of the novels, um, and I think it's all a bit romantic to suggest that you know the character is based on he, you know him himself and his experiences. He wasn't really sort of like out in the field doing the spy work as James Bond is. Um, it was more of an amalgamation of sort of things he was privy to and other figures and, and, and that kind of thing. But I think it is, you know, obviously, you know, just to pick an obvious example, J.K. Rowling didn't really go to a wizard school and all that kind of stuff. Where, whereas with Fleming, there's quite literal sort of stuff that we can take from his books that like, oh, yes, you experienced that, you know, in Diamonds Are Forever, Bond goes to like an oxygen bar and puts on a mask and, it, you know, has that experience in the airport. And it's like, ah, I'm guessing that's something that Fleming just did when he was uh, in Las Vegas airport. There's um, just to come to, sorry, to to talk over anybody uh just just to come to that point calvin uh there's a piece that he uh that fleming wrote about um diving um which you know is uh first person singular um and you know the the descriptions are, are really you know it's a really beautifully written kind of uh piece of journalism um and one, I can't remember where I read this, but somebody said somewhere along the line, sort of uh, something along the lines of um, replace I with Bond, and mm. it becomes, you know, uh, a, a similar to the description that you have of him doing the swim in uh, across to to the island in Live and Let Die, or or any of the other underwater stuff that we get in, say, sort of Thunderball. Um, and I think that's interesting. Uh, an interesting kind of uh, notion that um, the bond is 
is perhaps one of uh, Fleming's pronouns. Mm. <laughs> I like that. You know, as, as you're both talking, this is going to sound so bad. As you're both talking about this, I can't help thinking about myself. <laughs> Sounds a little bad. <laughs> but as an author myself, I don't write fiction. I write academic scholarship. And it's supposed to be, you know, as much as we talk about there's objectivity and, and it's supposed to be analytical, there is so much of me invested in my work. And I'm so passionate about what I do. And I actually feel as though my research is so deeply personal to the point that like there, there were times when I first started studying James Bond, I didn't care if anybody read what I had to say because it meant so much to me. And so I do struggle with the concept of sort of divesting the work, even academic scholarship from, from the author to the point that when my students write their papers, I tell them, you have to credit the authors for the work that they've done. They've done the research where my students will talk about texts as inanimate objects. Like they've already killed all the authors off. <laughs> They're like, according to this text. And I'm like, did the text just show up out of nowhere or was it written? Right. And I feel as though, you know, some 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 generations are actually more naturally inclined just to see the text for what they are and not necessarily consider the creators um, and 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 their sort of roles, passions, ideas, and influences. And I feel as though like right now, and maybe one of the reasons why we're talking about this and 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 to bring up a, a point that Calvin made is because you know a lot of people are talking about J.K. Rowling and how they feel about the Harry Potter series based on. Um, her stance uh, when it comes to the trans community and trans identities. Um, and, and a lot of people coming to that position and feeling like, how, what do I do with these texts? You know, do I still hold on to Harry Potter knowing, you know, that I don't agree with the perspectives and, and the voiced perspectives um, of, of, of the author? And so what do I do as sort of a young person and as a fan? And do I share these with my children? Do I share these with other people? And I feel as if I cycle back in my memory, I sort of did the same thing uh, when it came to when we started the Me Too movement and you have different filmmakers and producers coming out. And what do we do? Do we divest these texts from these creators? How do we talk about as a film scholar and a film historian? That's something I think about a lot. And as an educator, right? Like, how do we how do we talk about it? And what are the repercussions if we divest? What are the repercussions if we like connect them? Um, I think that there's like I think Fleming is a really great sort of microcosm for us to consider these issues. But I think that the significance of what we're talking about is really going to resonate with a lot of people in a lot of different contexts, because I think people are having in many ways, maybe not sort of on, on the academic level, but just having this personal conversation with themselves of how do we separate creators from their creative works? Do we do that? And and what is the significance of, of, of doing that? So as a creator myself and as somebody who studies this, I just have a whole bunch of like, weird mixed contradictory feelings and notions when it's about me it kind of feels one way and when it's not about me i'm like oh maybe it could happen so so yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's me talking about myself <laughs> can i just add on a bit to that phil i'm sorry to um talk I, you haven't really had your say on this yet but i just want to quickly just um make, make a point uh you know about myself i suppose based on what lisa was just saying because i kind of had to i feel like i had to kind of divorce myself from fleming as a person like quite early on because 
because there is that famous quote from him from that BBC interview, I think it was, where he's talking about his books and he says, uh, they're meant for warm-blooded heterosexual adults. They're not meant for schoolboys. And at that time, when I heard that interview, I was a homosexual schoolboy reading from Russia with Love. So it was kind <laughs> of like, oh, I, I guess, the, you know, the author is quite literally saying, this is not for you. Mm. So but yeah. I, I'm still getting something out of it. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I feel like that was yeah, built into me early on. In that regard, I think you've got maybe the most interesting perspective here because because he like directly targeted you. I mean, some decades before you were born, and said so this isn't yours. If, so in the horror space, we talk about death of the author all the time because go back ten years and what was happening in horror is sort of unacceptable today. And uh, but all through horror, you've got folks marginalized folks trying to enjoy the genre and having to eat a lot of shit frankly, to, mm. to do that, right? Um, so death of the author becomes very important if you're a trans person who wants to enjoy Sleepaway Camp, which I'm going to spoil Sleepaway Camp for you here. It's about a teen girl who's actually biologically a man. And that's the big horrifying reveal, like including the penis. Ugh. Like that's the reveal at the end. She's, she's crazy mm. and she's been killing all these people. And it's, oh my God, Angela's a man or Angela's a boy because she's like a teenager. She's like 13. Um, so that's a, terrible problematic piece of filmmaking mm -hmm. that trans folks some trans folks really really love they've they've really mm -hmm. figured out a way to identify with with uh angela's sort of revenge killing because she's picked on and she's bullied and the people that she kills all kind of deserve it uh according to the rules of the film um mm -hmm. and so it's a lot easier to map death of the author onto uh certain certain genres than flemings where as you folks have all mentioned it's all fairly fantastically autobiographical i guess you would say right so can i can i counter that phil and yes, say i think there's been a lot of revisionism on this okay uh, propagated in 2008 with the centenary of his birth when i i don't think the average man on the street if you asked them who ian fleming was would know sure and after 2008 with the just the fantastic job ifp did of putting it everywhere yeah that now I think that's not true, that most people know Fleming created Bond. Uh, right. I'm talking about average schmo and walking down the street, not a Bond right. Um Or civilians, as they're called, right? right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's been a lot of revisionism, a revisionism of this. And I came to this um, from John Pearson's Ian Fleming, The Notes book, which was released recently in very limited numbers. Um, and our reviewer um, who covered the book pointed this out too which was there's a lot of people in those interviews. And just for background, John Pearson did the biography of Fleming and he interviewed, you know, dozens or hundreds of people who knew Fleming. A lot of them mentioned that Fleming like didn't really know much about food or drinks or clothing. <laughs> um, and these were all supposed to be like James Bond's like character traits. Right. Sure. Um, and even people mentioned how awful the food at Goldeneye was, but right. Fleming like wrapped it up like it was gourmet. So <laughs> I don't think Fleming was this gourmet expert on clothes. No. And food. The, the, the people have since tried to make him out to be because it fits the narrative that Bond is Fleming. Right. Mm. Well, certainly he's not a one-to-one. -one. I, I think what I'm getting at is that, that in the case of Fleming and Bond, doing Death of the Author has to be a little bit more of a surgical strike in terms of you, you might be able to extract some of this stuff, but I think in terms of his, his philosophies and his intentions, that's a harder ask, I think, in, in this space. Yeah, I think you're right, Phil. I can't think of many authors 
who put so much of themselves into their work. Certainly there are authors who, uh, you know, are, are philosophical authors and are therefore, you know, the, the entire narrative is basically to expound a, 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 a philosophical argument, right? So they are, you know, by that notion you are putting, you know, if you're looking at Milan Kundra or, um, you know, someone like that or Salman Rushdie or anybody like that, you, you, you are, you know, you are having their, their voice in it to kind of illustrate a, you know, a, a, an argument or, or a perspective. Whereas with Fleming, his voice is within it kind of simply to be within it. You know, I think this about this, or I, these are the things that I like. Right. Um, Mapped and, onto what a lot of people call a travelogue. So you're, you're, you're reading, yeah. if you're in the 1950s, you're reading this to experience Harlem in 1954 or, or Jamaica or what have you, right? You're, you're trying to get a vicarious experience. And can that experience be at all objective when it's going through the prism of Fleming's brain? And, and a question that arises from that, Phil, which is that his brother, obviously, his brother Peter was a travel writer. Um, and there was obviously, you know, a very successful travel writer and uh, for, for a time more successful than, than Ian was. Um, and one wonders whether how much of Peter's travel writing and that that kind of philosophy of, uh, of travelogging um, really, really kind of informed the way that, that Fleming, Ian Fleming wrote about about Bond and, and his style. So therefore, is he able to extract himself really, or are we even able to extract Fleming from the Bond novels and still have them have any kind of real, uh, you know, substance to them? Yeah. Do you think that there's sort of like a dual process happening here? Like that, that were it like, whatever Fleming is doing and investing into his novels, right? That is sort of like an isolated incident. And I think I'm just sort of like pulling together what James has said and what like Phil and Ben are saying, like, I feel as though it's us who are now creating these connections between them, where we're trying to Mm -hmm. read into the novels Fleming and out of the novels, like, and through the novels, creating an identity or extrapolating an identity for Fleming that mirrors that of Bond. And this is all happening in a space, not at the time, but this is happening in the the space after you have like a blockbuster film franchise and all of this notoriety. And it feels as though, I, I don't think this is sort of death of the author. I think that maybe we are revisioning and revamping the author. I think it's and, resurrection of the author. Yeah, something something like, I mean, that's, you know, Bond gets resurrected all the time, you know? And so I feel as though that, like, there might actually be, like, a dual process happening here with many people sort of writing these legacies of Fleming and doing this work of making these connections. But I think the connections are going both ways. And so, like, it becomes then even more difficult for us to then talk about the novels for for those of us who are familiar with all of this extra textual information and sure. and it's it's hard for us to even to like take that and like not have that even be part of our knowledge because we uh sort of like take in knowledge and it becomes part of our own knowledge system and so yeah I, yeah i think this is a very sort of challenging uh, topic given well, just like the layer upon layer of conversations that i i think as you're right James, I mean, this is more of a recent phenomenon of, of talking about Fleming in this way than, right. than in previous years. Isn't there also a, a sort of an argument that the, the films aren't 
or sorry, the books are not particularly thematically uh, hefty. So the the only subtext that you can really derive from them is is Fleming and Fleming's attitudes and and the attitudes of the times, and they become these anthropological things that you study to sort of get a, a snapshot of of a time and a place and in a and an attitude, really. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't, I mean, or maybe I'm not giving them enough credit, but I don't think there are any particular heavy themes at work in these books. I think maybe you know loss of empire, maybe. But is that Slightly. is that uh, even intentional, or is he? Is it just bleeding out in terms of like th- that's just uh, on his on his subconscious there? I mean, this this is. A, I mean, Ben, you mentioned that interview, right? Or Calvin, you mentioned that interview originally. It's like, what if Fleming just wrote them to be toss away, read it on vacation book adventures? He well, that that, that was another. <laughs> that that you know. was another part of that quote. He, he sort of mm-hmm. says about they're meant to be read on planes, trains, you know, by pool sites right. and all that kind of stuff. Is why think- he literally called it pornography. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, as a, as, a, as a disposable form of entertainment, and mm. in recent years, there's been this effort to um, retcon this deeper subtext and Fleming's biography. I don't don't believe that there is, um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I don't believe that there is a deeper subtext to any of of Fleming's writing. I think they are elevated. I think they're elevated above the standard kind of airport fiction by, by Fleming's um, presence within them. um, And the fact that he has a particular flair uh, with his prose style. Um, but I think the moment that you ex- extract Fleming from those novels, you're not getting anything philosophical, really. You, you, get, you, get an, you get an occasional astute observation, but one also believes it's hard to, to kind of think that that isn't just Fleming making an observation. So even then, I don't believe that there is anything really kind of much deeper within them um right so what becomes deeper is you start to dig around what is what are his preoccupations and what what is what is on his mind as he comes to it which is that british empire the loss of british empire or the denial of the loss of british empire in the fantasy character of bond like if ben if ben sold shoes for a living and ben uh talked about shoes a lot and uh his mom's shoes and had a website called shoes that i think my mom would like like suddenly ben's telling you something about himself (laughs) and it's (laughs) And it's what FBI agents call leakage. And I think there's so much like leakage in the Bond books of what Fleming's preoccupied with, whether it's conscious or not. Um, that's that's a good point, Phil. So I was going to have a question for everybody. Yeah. So um, following the death of the author trait, so if, if, if there's a character in the Bond books, maybe not Bond himself, who is racist, does that mean Fleming has racist connotations or is he just putting that as a trait of the character for the purposes of storytelling or whatever? Um, every villain in the Bond books, that's dis- everybody that's disabled in the Bond books except for Felix Leiter is a villain. So does that mean that Fleming's an ableist, right? Mm. Or is it just a method of storytelling and yada, 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 and, and more kind of appealing to the reader's bias versus his own? Well, I think he's certainly playing into that and probably does to an extent uh you know 
buy into it himself and if he doesn't he's perpetuating an awful lot of stereotypes and negative i mean in in fleming it's like unless you're a white british man you're probably not you know not going to be portrayed terribly flatteringly by the occasional american or whatever and yeah you know i uh, the same goes for lgbt representation as well in his books everyone who's lgbt is uh you know i mean pussy galore is yeah i mean pussy galore is you know, uh, turned uh, through her relationship with James and Tilly Masterton, Tilly Masterton in that same book dies as a result of her, you know, they tried to draw a parallel between if she wasn't a lesbian and she wasn't running for help yeah. from Pussy Galore, maybe she'd have lived and, you know, and and that's, uh, there's the thing in uh, The Man with the Golden Gun where they sort of go on this sort of very not essential sidebar about Scaramanga potentially being bisexual or gay or something and then there's this thing about gay people can't whistle it's this really yeah. strange like I'm sure Fleming heard that at a dinner party or something yeah. Um, yeah. but I think you know and, and I think a lot of Don't people often point <laughs> I, I've I've heard a lot of people point to kind of like, well, Fleming was friends with Noel Coward, and he had this you know incredibly metropolitan lifestyle and all this kind of stuff. Surely, and it's right. I, I don't think that's an excuse. That's a I'm not racist. My best friend, my best friend is black. Yeah, kind of yeah, a hundred percent. Like you know, you hear all these stories about how well he treated, you know, his his black staff at uh, Goldeneye. It's like oh, so he was really nice to his servants, was he? Um, <laughs> So, so you know, there's 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 that as well. I just want to quickly say this about um, kind of the ableism as well. Um, you know, James, he said, "Oh, the only person who's kind of treated well is is lighter." I don't believe that that's that's being treated well. I think that's him saying, "Look at well, this." Felix, Felix isn't a villain because he's disabled. No. No, yeah, that's true. He's not a villain because he's disabled, but he does. He is used as a as a, as a means of saying, "Look at this guy. He's lost an arm and a leg, and he's st- his posi- uh, his disposition is sunny and positive, and that's where you should be if you've had a traumatic kind of <laughs> you know if you've right. been mauled by a shark and it wasn't <laughs> your fault, you should be looking forward to going fishing next week, right? I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, and and it's just this whole kind of thing of like, oh. Bond saw Felix was totally fine and he just had a hook put on and he was able to buy, you know, like have his car adapted and he was fine about it. So why is, you know, everybody else is wrong to grumble about that. And I, and I feel that that is in its own way, ableist as well. Um, his treatment of mental health is, is particularly bad. You know, Red Grant is, you know, a literal lunatic, um, you know, affected by the moon um it's you know so it's not just it's not just physical um you know deformities that uh, that he that he for one of the better words uh, that he that he fix it yeah. the, the thing i was trying to get at was if you're doing traditional like stru- structuralism and, and analyzing the books this way and like looking for Fleming's things you can't have it both ways so you know, when these official IFP projects come out and they're all linking like Fleming's love of food and travel and all of these good quote unquote traits into the Bond character and back mm-hmm. again, yeah. don't see any celebration of, you know, racism, ableism, no, no. misogyny, you know, all these. So are they saying that they're just going to pick the bits of the Bond character they want to retroactively put into Fleming's biography? 100%. And, yeah. and we're just going to leave yeah. off, well, you know, one of the characters did this terrible thing. That's, that's just the story. 
It's nothing to do yeah, with. That's not Fleming himself. Right. That's, right. that's him writing. Yeah. No, I, I don't. I, I kind of agree with with Calvin on this. I think it's kind of, um, you know, it's it's one thing to have somebody say, um, oh, you know, Bill Coward's my best friend or whatever, and then to write something as, as damaging as, as Pussy Galore or Rosa yeah. Clegg. Do you and, folks think... Do you think that the accountability uh, that you constantly see being Fleming being sort of confronted with is the price of the success and the enduring uh, appeal of of the character? I don't I don't hear people talking about Jim Thompson's racism or homophobia or or you know Raymond Chandler's outdated views so much, but it it Fleming it's constantly put at his feet, even though the films have evolved yeah. so much mm-hmm. uh, fr- from what the source material was. It's it's still uh, brought up pretty much hand in hand when, when anyone is discussing Fleming. One thing that I see um, through conversations is the way that people utilize Fleming as being like, I know what you're saying about sort of like taking the, the positive qualities, you know, and, and, and sort of building up the, the legacy of Fleming. Um, but I also see Fleming being utilized to justify other things that have continued on, whether it's in the novels or the film. So, for instance, if there's sexism, for instance, I mean, the novels mm. uh, are definitely grappling with a lot of things like women in the workforce. You know, how how do you how do we deal with women in the workforce? You know, how do we deal with women in the service? Um, but also just broader issues when it comes to, say, sexual consent and the value of women. And, you know, I've heard people say, yeah, but Fleming you know, Fleming had these ideas and therefore it's okay. Um, utilizing Fleming as being sort of an excuse for some of the isms that like, like sexism, racism, and so on that then appear. So like that, that there's a purism to Fleming. And so mobilizing the author in that way, and, and it's still ascribing in a sense, negative qualities, but utilizing the author to justify those, get what I'm saying? So it's mm, not totally. necessarily like a negative quality thing. It's, it's saying it, it, because it's pure, pure to him, then it's okay that the, these things exist. And mm-hmm. so I've seen yeah. that happen. And I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that that's, that's an interesting phenomenon while at the same time ascribing additional qualities or different qualities so that we can celebrate them, um, you know, consumer-wise uh, with this franchise. So, mm. Silence. I think that's, I, no, I, <laughs> I, think, I, I think one of the things is, uh, you often make such good points, Lisa, that, you know, <laughs> you, you, we, it, it hits us and we're assimilating that. We've got a little spinning beach ball in yeah. our brains. But what James, <laughs> what James is saying is that <clears throat> Fleming is still big business. So you kind of have to, so I, I, it doesn't surprise me that they're trying to sort of scrub him a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, kind of downplaying the unsavory bits. And it is interesting because I do see that all the time uh, with any time, for example, when it comes up, the idea of casting, uh, God, when it came time to cast a blonde man, they, they were losing their mind. That's not Fleming. This isn't Fleming. And, and, they, and they all wanted to go back to Fleming, even though mm-hmm. that Fleming's description doesn't really match, I don't know, like maybe three-fourths of the, of the actors that are playing <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> it's, it's this... I guess this back to your death of the author thing. It's a, it's a grapple. It's a constant grappling of, it comes down to money to me because we, he's still an industry. You're not going to get rid of him. He's not going to stop making content, uh, that machine with, with that name on it. So how do they reconcile 
the the less uh, savory bits with with the fact that this is still a, um, an industry for someone. Mm. And, and I I don't know if they necessarily need to like I, I you know I I think a lot of the times when people like us have conversations like this, you know, I, I don't think any of us are advocating censorship or anything. Like, you know, I think we can talk about an infamous chapter heading from uh, Live and Let Die. And I, you know, I, for one, am not suggesting that the text be changed or, you know, adapted to suit more, right. you know, modern, uh, yeah, more widely accepted uh, views on terminology and that kind of thing. But I, I think it does speak to kind of like, a, and maybe this is a modern thing. I don't know. I was on a different podcast uh, talking about uh, Hercule Poirot not that long ago, uh, just to bring him up and just talking How about him in the... <laughs> that character in those books and how he is quite a not a very appealing character and he's vain and quite stuck up and all this kind of stuff a bit like bond mm-hmm. and i don't know if it's if it is a completely modern sort of invention the the uh frame of mind that i like this thing therefore it, whoever who made it must be good and must mm-hmm. uh, you know adhere to my sort of viewpoint which is also good and that kind of thing like i think there is nuance when you're talking about this kind of stuff like i find fleming himself like quite a problematic figure that sure. doesn't mean that i don't enjoy the text like mm-hmm. i i get a lot out of reading his stuff and i think it is making that distinction that some people have difficulty with yeah and and there's there's interesting ways where we're starting to come to terms with these authors. For example, there's the uh, book and show Lovecraft Country, which is on HBO right now, which is basically about <clears throat> black culture sort of grappling with and assimilating and sort of reclaiming a lot of the space that a very racist author named H.P. Lovecraft had had created. I mean, uh, and people are mad that they're doing that because there 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 is a faction of folks that say no, Lovecraft needs to be buried. Lovecraft was a clo- uh, not closeted, a very sheltered uh, neurotic author in New England who names his cat the N word. And um, you know, there's there's not a lot of excuses you can make for his his attitudes toward other races, and it and it bleeds through mm-hmm. into all of his writing and whatnot. But instead of burying him, what's happening now is is that in the creative space, black creators are are reclaiming that content. Mm-hmm. And doing interesting things with it. And I think that that reckoning, although that's not really the right word, but I think that that sort of uh, reconciling maybe is uh, is on the horizon for Fleming in fits and starts. And and anytime someone makes a move, the, you hear noise from both sides about it. Like, why are we why are we still doing Fleming? It's time to bury James Bond and and then stop changing Bond. You know, it's uh, it's. <laughs> It pisses everybody off, which is interesting. Like, I don't know who's happy at the end, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's a weird, it's growing pains to me. It it's it's a weird evol- evolutionary like uh, grumbling that's happening at the moment. Here's a, uh, I know that I know that when we, uh, I, I think that's a, an excellent um, point, Phil, um, and I don't wish to kind of uh, step away from it um, Go ahead. too readily. Um, <laughs> But, but one of the things that, um, you know, we are talking about in terms of evolution of, of the character, uh, and I know that, James, we said we were only discussing um, you know, Fleming's work, but isn't it interesting how, you know, what what do you consider to be... It, it, like, so, so there are continuation novelists who have said, I'm writing as Ian Fleming. Right. Or I'm emulating that style, mm. right? So that's mm-hmm. not just a prose. That's not so. When false did Devil May Care, he wasn't. He wasn't just going. 
I'm going to write like Fleming. He said, I'm going to write as Fleming. Yeah. And, th- and, there's, there's a theory, conno- yeah. and there's a connotation that comes along with that, right? That is not, it's not just a, it, it's not just an appropriation of pro style. It is, I'm writing as if my mind is this person and therefore I'm going to, I'm going to have a, a, a greater veracity to my writing. Um, whereas someone like, uh, you know, Horowitz has more just a kind of a, 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 a similar pro style. He's, he's kind of like just nailing like, the way in which Fleming wrote rather than necessarily the, the attitudes, because that's, uh, you know, um, right. it's, 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 it's evident that he, you know, changes uh, Pussy Galore back, <laughs> so to speak, um, which I think is one of the, you know, the, the best things that he, he has done in, in his writing. Yeah. So my question really with that is that how tied into mm-hmm. the literary bond as a character is, you know, is Fleming's voice within that? Once we, I, I'd say they've had completely schizophrenic approaches to that because, yeah. um, and I have issues with how I had really big issues with how folks came out of that devil may care, which was apart from, you know, I, th- I thought it was a bit crap. Um, but was, was he, did he think the project was beneath him and therefore to make it a challenge, he did the, I'm going to write a book in the voice of a different author or uh, not exclusive or, um, mm. Was he afraid that people wouldn't like it or he wasn't up to it? And therefore, if I do it as a pastiche, then I get a like insurance policy against my own work, right? Well, this wasn't the first time that he had written as another role. No. So, no. Um, you know, it was within his kind of, um, you know, there was, there was a precedent for him doing this already. Um, I, I personally feel like he chose option A uh, in your um, <laughs> in your question there, there, James. I think he basically didn't like Fleming, didn't think he was that great an author, despite all of the usual uh, stuff that comes out from uh, you know in Fleming publications about authors always being lifelong fans and, and relishing the opportunity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I genuinely think faults um was was quite uh condescending um to yes. not just to, to 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 the character but to, to to fleming within that that novel and it um left a very kind of ashy taste in my mouth mm-hmm. i felt i felt very much like bond did in the opening pages of casino royale at 3 a.m in his casino um after reading that i was not i was not a happy man but um but it is interesting, I think, that um, you have an author there who is trying to be like the opposite to death of the author. Rather than taking the yes. author out of the text, he's putting him back in. Well, I'll give you the counterexample. 1968, Glidrose, you know, you know, now known as Ian Fleming Publications, 1968, got Kingsley Amis, Kingsley Amis, right, to write a continuation book. <laughs> And went the whole death of the author route by using a pseudonym of Robert Markham. Yeah. They didn't want any biographical knowledge of the author to affect the reading of the book, the text. Mm. And that's, and then they they completely countered that with the whole, I'm writing as Ian Fleming charade. 
yeah, later. it's a very, it's a very, very interesting. That's a very good uh, example, actually, James, because I think you know many people consider to, um, Colonel Sun to be a, a, one of the better, if not the best, continuation novels. Uh, certainly mm-hmm. up there in my, in my estimation, mm-hmm. um, and Fleming's voice is obviously notably absent within it because he is dead. <laughs> um, and uh, but it doesn't but it doesn't detract from you know the quality of the of, of, of the novel itself and I don't believe that Amos is necessarily um, doing a pastiche either I think he's somebody who you know is, is trying to do a, a respectful kind of continuation um, it's not his his it, there's nothing within it that makes his voice known either. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I don't know if any of you guys read much of Kingsley and his stuff, but it's not something that you, you read Colonel Sun and go, oh, I know who wrote this. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like if Fleming wrote something else, you know, like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or the Diamond Smugglers or whatever it might be, you know, his voice is, um, is certainly recognizable within it. I do find like this, this idea of imitating Ian Fleming to be interesting as you're talking and, and, and discussing this, I'm thinking of Bruce Lee. So after Bruce Lee passed away, there were a series of Bruce Lee imitators who came out. So basically Hong Kong filmmakers wanted to continue with the Kung Fu craze. Bruce Lee was the biggest star in the 1970s. He passed away quite suddenly. And so there were a whole bunch of like Bruce Lee, Bruce Lai, Bruce Lowe, uh, all playing on his name. Actors who looked very much like Bruce Lee, who were costumed oftentimes very similar and who are very, who are oftentimes sort of mimicking Bruce Lee. But the problem with these films is that they didn't have the essence of Bruce Lee. It was all sort of like the superficial attempt mm-hmm. to channel mm-hmm. Bruce Lee, but without the actual Bruce Lee being part of it. And so I find it very interesting, this idea of trying to write in the voice of another author. And I think maybe somebody who was personally close with F- Fleming would know who he was, like beyond sort of the books that we get or even sort of the public persona. But even then to understand somebody's thought processes, the way that they conceptualize their language, you know, their moods, their states, how they write. I mean, there's a lot that actually goes into an individual person sort of sharing and crafting their ideas. And so I find, you know, this notion of sort of like imitating and channeling and the performance of it to just be a little bit, I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I don't fully understand why you would sort of go through that process instead of saying, right. you know, this person started this great series and there's this great character that I've connected with. And so I want to then write, you know, a novel about that character and it'll be somewhat connected, but it's also, you know, my perspective. It just, yeah, the, the whole idea of just sort of like the performance aspect, it just reminds me of other instances where I've seen people try to do things like that and fall short by comparison because the essence that comes from it, the chemistry, the connections, it really is sort of like an individual thing. Yeah. So it would be the equivalent of a book by like Liam Fleming, right? I mean, it was <laughs> 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 too close. Why didn't um, someone yeah. do that? Oh, there was a, there was a great parody from the 60s called Alligator. 
I think that's Na- right. National Lampoon put it out. And if you get your hands on that, you see how very easy it is to parody Ian Fleming's writing. Huh. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a little. Oh, it's almost a pamphlet, but it's a little hard to find. But uh, yeah, and they, put, they put asterisks in the vowels, exactly, don't they, for James Bond? Yes. And uh, <clears throat> and I think there was another one called Bond Strikes Camp that I haven't been able to find yet. But uh, they, yeah. they they were sort of riffing on Fleming. His, his style was easily mimicked, I think, at the time, and and it was done for fun more often than not. So the idea of like like you said, these folks sort of trying to replicate his style is is a different thing. Maybe it's because they. The perception is that like Fleming was creating a world and that world we recognize is not the real world at all, but it was very much his. Yeah. Lisa, you mentioned like, if, if, if somebody knew Fleming personally, they'd be in a better position to write because they could carry through author's intention and all the rest of it, right? One person who was that in that situation was John Pearson, <laughs> who wrote Fleming's bio, knew everybody he knew, talked to them all, um, and then wrote, you know, the authorized, the fictional authorized continuation of the James Bond book, which Calvin, not really. <laughs> not a fan. I'm not a fan not myself. Fan. What, the biography? Uh, no, no, sorry. The, well, the unauthorized, uh, what's it called? I'm just looking over my book. The unauthorized yeah. biography of James Bond. Oh, right. Yeah, that's it. No, I, I, I didn't care for it at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it just felt very... Um, I, I mean, it's a really strange one because it's sort of... Uh, John Pearson himself is a character within the story meeting James Bond, who is a real person right. that Ian Fleming knew in the world of the book and based the books on, but he exaggerated that James Bond. So, oh God, okay. So Pearson is writing about a fictional James Bond who he says Ian Fleming further fictionalized for his Bond books. Yeah. And then he goes into the history of that character. And then you've just got these chapters of Pearson talking to this, his version of James Bond, um, who's just like, oh yeah, no, Fleming wrote that. And it's absolute drivel. I didn't uh, do that at all. It's like, oh, this is a really strange, multi-layered thing. Very, very odd. And then Fleming Fleming becomes a character. Sorry, go on. Well, no, I just that the, the, the book is all about debunking and sort of demystifying and, and giving you this more grounded version. And then the character, while talking to Pearson, gets called back into action to go fight the mutant rats of Crumper's Dick. <laughs> okay. And it is the most left field goddamn thing out of like. <laughs> I thought the book was an interesting experiment, and then and then it ends with that. And I think it's Irma Bunt who's like breeding these mutant, mutant rats <laughs> at a place yeah. called Crumper's Dick. And uh, I, I I like I like did the slow look up into the horizon after finishing that book, going. What just <laughs> well, I I I don't know that I I entirely agree here, uh, Phil and Callum, in the sense that there's always a certain tongue-in-cheek um that come that certainly in the you know as, as the novels progress from Fleming and a certain sure. disdain disdain for his creation as well so there were you know quite a few instances of him kind of you know taking the piss out of Bond for one of mm-hmm. better uh, terminology and and also putting in you know many of his uh, many of his kind of characters were quite quite uh closer to kind of caricature rather than character and mm-hmm. they you know because of of that you do have the occasional kind of 
not quite as far as mutant rats, but you, you know, we're not we're <laughs> giant we're squids. Often, yeah, we are ste- well, quite or you know, killer centipedes or guys with kind of the heart on the wrong side and you know, wrapped in tinfoil. <laughs> there, there are there are absurdities within uh, Fleming's writing, and mm. I think you know it's something that people always. I've said this before, but people always say, um, "Oh, you know, bring back the dark and gritty Bond of Fleming." It's like what the mm. you know the one with the kill, the killer tarantula and the you know, <laughs> um, you, you know, like has he got to crawl mm. through? Has he got to crawl through spiders and dive a hundred feet into into you know octopus infested waters? Um, <laughs> it's it, it, there is absurdity, there is surrealism, um, and there is kind of. A, a, a pervasive disdain that that comes across in Fleming's writing that I think you know perhaps Pearson might have kind of picked up on with that last um, reveal, so to speak. Well, I mean, to be to be honest, that reveal like I'd have much rather read a book about that adventure. That sounds far more exciting than the, than the book that we got. My, my, issue, my issue more with the book is that you sell this on the basis that it's oh, this is Ian Fleming's James Bond, the unauthorized biography. We're going to find out all about him, and then you're not even writing about Fleming's Bond. You're inventing your own character that you're saying that Fleming based his character on, right? Gotcha. It's just this weird sort of level of different realities and fictional universes that I find quite bizarre. Can I um, can I uh, bring up the the fact that you know to to kind of uh, move on from that same notion of of having a fictionalized character um, within another book? Um, you have Fleming himself appear in, in a couple of books. I think in. Uh, one of William Boyd's books, Fleming, um, is is somebody that he meets, uh, uh, and um, I, I, I think uh, God help me out here. I'm uh, the Sherlock guy. Um, I'm cool, having a, a brain freeze. Uh, the guy who plays uh, his brother uh, in the television show. Oh gosh. Um, uh... Uh, <laughs> Mark Gattis. Um, there you sorry, go. Mark I had an absolute moment of, of, of uh, you know, frozen frozen brain syndrome. But again, Fleming appears as a character in, in one of his books. Hmm. So uh, it's interesting when we're discussing kind of death of the author and the removal of Fleming as, as a voice, how kind of uh, seductive an idea it is to have him as a character. Um you know, in in, 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 a, in a in a book of fiction, as well. Also, also, is it a, is it a very cheap way of using James Bond in your story without having to get the rights? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, mm-hmm. there is that as well. Which Sky TV did with their Fleming series. Oh, uh, I that. Uh, right. I reviewed that um, for for the mag. Uh, so, if anyone wants to to read that review, I think it's still up there. Um, I I. I was kind, but um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I think I think my whole thing was like uh, Fleming liked to fictionalize, you know, things and make things bigger and than they actually were. And Sky uh, said, "Hold my beer." <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, because that's that's quite a, a ridiculous thing of him kind of going behind enemy lines and shooting. Nazi soldiers and all sorts of weird stuff that goes on in that. Mm. Uh, 
there was enough veracity in in you know there was enough sorry I, was, I should say there was enough going on in Fleming's real life that they could have they could have really mined right. something out of that but they just they just decided to make make a, a cheap Bond show mm. with completely the wrong casting. Oh yeah. my god, yeah. And most of it happens in like all the exciting sequences end up being dreams. Like episodes start with these kind of like, oh wow, this is a bit of nice action. And then it's like, oh no, it's a dream or it's a test sequence, you know, it's a test uh, facility or whatever. And it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, Calvin, it's I, a hologram. Was, <laughs> you know, you just reminded me though, for a minute, for a minute there, there was in development an Ian Fleming bio that Duncan Jones yep. was supposed to do. Yep. And, yep. and I think that they invoked the name Walter Mitty at one point yeah. and made it sound like it was going to be like, you know, through his sort of fantasy life prism kind of thing. Oh, wow. And then the huh. TV movie just sort of dropped all the irony out of that. <laughs> yeah. For the uh, just straight bullshit. Well, yeah. yeah. So I got a question for you all then. So um, if multiple readers will derive their own meanings from the Bond text, um, is it fair to say, therefore, that the text can't have a single meaning and therefore the analysis of Fleming's intent has been given way too much friggin' prominence? Hmm. I think that's what I was getting at. Like that, that if, if you're looking for something to sink your teeth into in these books, you know, on an academic level, all you have is, is, is Fleming in terms of the, uh, his, his intentions, his, his attitudes, which, uh, you know, you've talked about here already, but. I just, yeah. other than a historical snapshot of post-war England and and a f- the, the fantasy that the culture was craving, I don't know what you do with those texts uh, other than sort of uh, regard them as these sort of archaeological kind of uh, uh, pleasures, sure, but, but uh, also curiosity. But even, even then, he's not describing actual post-war England, is he? He's kind of describing his fantasy of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So There's some reading between the lines involved of like, this is... This is a white man's fantasy of, of the empire in decline, right? Um, yeah. So yeah. So it's think- not even a. So it's not even a necessarily. Um, you know, if you if you have completely removed Fleming from from the, the analysis of the text, right? Mm-hmm. You still can't use it as a historical reflection, other than to say. This is this is through the prism of the author, and therefore you can't do that because the author is supposed to be taken out. Well, how, how, how about this? Is I think the the interesting analysis that has not been done because we've had now more books about how Fleming's in the Bond books than there are Bond books. <laughs> mm-hmm, right? yeah. mm-hmm. And I have a big problem with that because this is just revisionism at this point. Sure. Um, yeah. The I think to your point, Ben, about you can't use the texts as any kind of like historical record. I mean, it's not like those diaries it's not like a diary right it's not a historical document because it's fancy but yeah how about an analysis of how the public read them the meanings they derive from them Mm. at different points in time yep from when they were published through the decades to today and the meanings that readers derive from them during those different time periods and i don't think that's been done yet and i think that's a more effective Analysis. I mean, you know, as we're talking about author intentions, how do you know? 
How do you know what Ian Fleming's intentions are? Is there like the Ian Fleming diary that he wrote every day when he was writing a page? I intend to say this and I intend to do that. Like, how do we know? Are we simply inferring and extrapolating or placing upon Ian Fleming things that we're reading out of it? And I think maybe our focus should be on how people read it at the time and later on. So as society uh, develops and changes, and by the way, when I say develop, it doesn't necessarily mean in a positive way or a negative way, just society develops and changes over time. Do people's perceptions change over time? And do we reach a moment where we look back with nostalgia? And I'm wondering how that, I mean, we've talked on this podcast about how nostalgia influences our own feelings about certain Bond films and our connections. And sometimes we have more positive feelings about certain films than others. What role does nostalgia play in our thinking about Ian Fleming and thinking about these novels? If we've read them in our youth and our childhood, if we're reading them later on, you know, can we be critical or are we just having broader connections, you know, in, in terms of our own, you know, personal identities? And so therefore we're actually writing into Fleming our personal experiences of his novels. So I, I think there's something to, to be said about like studying the other side of it, the reception. And I think that there's a lot of material that we could possibly comb through. I think that a lot of people have a lot of things to say about it. Um, and maybe some stuff that's just a little bit more substantive instead of going back and trying to remake the Ian Fleming wheel over and over and over again. It's interesting. I'm having a conversation well, or I'm part of a conversation I should say on Twitter with somebody who is reading uh, Fleming for the first time. Um, so to your point, Lisa, about, you know, can we extrapolate ourselves, you know, our own uh, our history from it? You know, can we can we take away our childhood and our and what it meant to us when we were reading it? Um, it's really interesting to see somebody reading them for the first time now and their kind of reactions to the texts uh, as an adult um, and in today's time. And I think, you know, I can't personally step myself entirely away from reading these books at, at, you know, eight or nine years old to being a 45 year old reading them for the first time. Um, it, it, you know, it does have a, it, they will always have that kind of pink tinge of, you know, um, childhood to them. And so it's interesting to have these conversations with people who are reading them for the first time and saying, mm -hmm. well, this doesn't, this doesn't scam at all. Um, and are they finding that there's basically no objective meaning to them at all without the well, knowledge of Fleming I, and without, without the, uh, the pink, yeah, you know, the, the pink tinted sunglasses. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think, uh, you know, that there the is, it is interesting in a sense because, you know, you're not getting kind of like a, a, a full review of each novel at the end of it. You just kind of, this, this guy's just like, well, I just, I just finished Diamonds of Forever and, you know, that was a bit fucked up because, you know, like, <laughs> like the, you know, the, the, the mafia characters were so kind of two dimensional and, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't really understand what the, you know, and, uh, you know, so you, you, you kind of, you, you kind of have to sort of distance yourself from, you, you know, the, uh, the, the image of the man, you know, this, this great writer, and then come back down to what is essentially very cartoon, particularly something like diamonds, which is very cartoonish. Um, and, 
you know, and, and does have, because it is, as, as um, you know, Phil was saying earlier, it has that travelogy element to it. Um, it it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very odd thing to, to look at now. And I think if you, took, if you took Diamonds of Forever, for example, this is the one time I think that you can use Fleming as a historical touchstone because his description of America in, you know, the, the, the mid fifties or, you know, slightly later the mid fifties, um, is interesting, uh, from a, from an outsider's perspective. Um, but really that's about, that's about all you could really get in terms of meat from those bones. And going in cold in 2020 is a crazy proposition for, for, uh, Fleming. <laughs> Right, uh, and I can't imagine like what that's going to be like in ten or twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think they'll withstand the kind of same kind of scrutiny, or even have the same. So there won't be as many of us here to kind of say, "I'll give them a chance." You know, we, you know, they're they're a product of their time or whatever. You know, you you'll just get people who have have divorced themselves further and further from from reading them as children or reading, you know, reading them on context of when they came out, sure. they'll just be these kind of strange oddities. I mean, the, the closest that you can kind of come to, I suppose, is Conan Doyle in terms of how they've been, uh, how his works have been kind of received and, and, and perpetuated and adapted over time. So perhaps, you know, that they will, um, they will, that they will be looked on in that light slightly fondly, perhaps, um, but it's hard to know. No, and, and you're seeing others fall by the wayside. Like I, 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 I don't know how you're going to do Tarzan again. I think the last one was kind of a limp attempt, and you know these things have kind of calcified, and other pulp heroes have kind of fa- fallen by the wayside. And, and as the studio executives who grew up on those things age out of their jobs, you're you're not having anyone championing them to be uh, readapted or reinvented. You know, like in the '90s, you had that weird spike of Dick Tracy and The Shadow and The Phantom. Uh, that's because those those producers greenlighting those films had grown up on those things and, and were trying to get them. Right. And, and that's um, you know, modesty blaze. <laughs> Live right. in hope. Live in hope, my friend. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's interesting. I, I should just say that like there's are a lot of conversations out there about wanting to have. I mean, whether logistically or legally, this is even possible is another debate, but a lot of people do actually want to see some kind of period accurate adaptation of Fleming. Um, but it, but that is, is so far removed from. Well, define uh, period adaptation then define period adaptation because Bond wasn't living in the current world when those books were published. No. Anyway. No, he was living in a, in a fantasy version right. of 1950. Five or whatever it was, yeah, right. So it looked like something like those OSS one seventeen movies that came out a few years yeah. ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I don't think you can call it period. No, you're right, and that and that is also sort of my argument earlier about you know whether they were they're accurate and then and they're not accurate at the time. And uh, but I suppose I should rather say a kind of a faithful adaptation. Faithful. There you go. Yeah. Um, but, I'm not having to go at you, Ben. I mean, everybody, no, no. everybody's touting this like let's do period James Bond. It's like it, it's not period. It's not a period. No, you're, you're right. I should I should rephrase that as a faithful adaptation of, no, of Fleming's novels. But 
I and I you know I would be interested to see that, but the 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 the, the polar difference between the cinematic character that we have now and you know a faithful adaptation of Bond in the books is is just vast and um it, you know it's, it's kind of phil is talking about the the kind of the evolution of, of i, of I don't think now. the public would recognize it no i don't think so um and and i wonder to your point james is is you know, I, I say that there's a lot of people asking for it. I'm talking about a lot of kind of non-civilians on, you know, <laughs> on forums going, oh, wouldn't that be nice? And even they're a small number within the small number. So, um, you know, I wonder whether there is even an appetite for it. Other than, I used you know, to argue you yeah. couldn't do it because of product placement issues, but I, I think that there's so many, you know, fashion and, and, and stuff is so cyclical that they could probably, I mean, they made the damn Goldfinger car this year. Yeah. Oh, well, look, look at look at the Man from Uncle movie. I mean, that's. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'd like to see a stage play. I person. did it. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> you did it yourself. <laughs> uh, well, that's a fantasy world, but it's got retro styling and. Right. I just. Yeah, I guess. But, I mean, the, the economics of of uh, Bond movie having to sort of like having to. I don't know, uh, but it seeming seeming to have to. Uh, rely on product placement endorsement deals and whatnot so much I like is there really I, a market for this well yeah I, I i was gonna say that i don't feel like you could um adapt the text anyway because it gets into this whole like they've already been adapted like mm-hmm. and, and and some of them you know the screenwriters come in and they fix plot holes and things that are inherently problematic with the text or whatever and it's uh I, so if you yeah, do right. if you do a faithful adaptation of goldfinger and you get to the bit where james bond gets out of a situation by offering to be goldfinger's secretary and goldfinger's like yes i'm going to hire you and you're going to work for me and do my paperwork for a bit of the film the audiences are going to look at that and be like what the hell is this <laughs> it, it's a very strange so i think the only way it could possibly happen would have to be as like some kind of super low budget fan project because otherwise no one is going to sit through the year and live twice faithful adaptation and where literally half the movie is just bond talking with tiger Tanaka about the fall of yeah. each other's empires and just being like well <laughs> what's your empire like these days and all that let's go to a whorehouse yeah um <laughs> it's 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 very it's very it's very interesting uh, in, i wonder whether they would have to do it slightly tongue-in-cheek you know uh, like would it would it be a, a bit more parody than Adapta- I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's an odd one. I, I, I am. I would be interested to. You know, they did a Star Trek um, kind of spin-off uh, fan creation, which you know, utilizing kind of uh, accurate costumes and sets yeah. and stuff. And I think that did very well. Um, <laughs> the legal uh, journey of that production is more interesting than the actual output. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know that there were some that, that I, I find quite an interesting thing, and I you know if if a fan if there was to be a fan kind of made thing, but you know uh, the way it is now with uh, as James kind of hinted there with legalities, particularly with um, the very litigious uh, Jan Jack and Eon, um, you know legal department. I don't I, you know which we've all probably had our various scrapes with um you know would it even get as far as you know the first take i, I seriously doubt it hmm. 
And back to the thing about fidelity, you know, if we look at adaptation studies and and don't quote me, I'm not a specialist in adaptation studies when it comes to like film theory, but, you know, there's always this notion that for a long time that fidelity and faithfulness was a good thing. Um, But there's been recognition about a change in media medium from, from a written version to a visual version. And there's different things that you can do in a written text. There's a lot of introspection Mm. you can get, you know, a lot of the inner life and the inner world of characters that you do in a written form, but that can't really be manifested in a visual form, right? Things we just sort of, we represent the world differently and through different ways based on the different type of textual uh, medium that, that we're working on. And so, you know, adaptation studies really talks about like, what is the pro like, what do you keep? And then like, what is the process of creative reanimation? What are you adding? You know, what are you adjusting? And I think, you know, even just talking about plot holes, but really adjusting a text to uh, the pace and the tone and the representational qualities of film requires divergence from the original text source. And I think there's some really interesting when you think about Romeo and Juliet there's some really interesting adaptations out there um of this t- I mean there's so many adaptations out there so I mean you have to get creative after a while after like the 50th one you're like okay I got to do something different um but I think that there's interesting ways to to be different um so I just I guess I I I, I just don't understand I don't fully understand like this desire to have like a straight faithful adaptation right now even of sort of like Fleming novels uh, to films. Whereas I like the idea of films touching on and tapping into different aspects of his novels. Like even today, like we're not doing straight adaptations of say storylines or with titles, but really bringing in maybe a character or bringing in like a quality or an element to sort of still have that connection to sort of this literary creator who really conceptualized Bond. Um, and who, again, when we're talking about like authorship, you know, who's really authoring the films, who's writing the scripts, who's the creative vision behind how much of Fleming is in the cinematic yeah. bond um, and how much of it is, it is, you know, <laughs> writers and like, like, like broccoli and, and, but like, I think it really, you know, even when we talk about like cinema, like then you're talking about like another author, if we use auteur theory, you know, another creator creating off of the work of somebody else and the scriptwriter themselves is an author. So there's a lot of authorship that happens in mm. cinematic adaptations. So uh, yeah, I, just sort of everywhere. Well, that's, that's, a, that's actually 100%. That's a really, really good point, Lisa, because so we're talking about this This whole episode is about, you, you know, how much of Fleming, how much of how much Fleming is important within Bond and, if, and you know, in his novels. And if you took him out of it, how do they stand up? If you do a an inverted commas faithful adaptation, by, by necessity you were taking Fleming out of it. Because that voice is not going to be heard. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not going to be. And you can't guarantee that any conclusions you've got to about his intentions are accurate. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Now Fleming oh. adapted his own film and made the film. Then I think more strong conclusions could be made about him taking his original text and then making a screenplay for it, and then like oh. directing it and visualizing it. And yeah, didn't he do that the other way around with Thunderball though? <laughs> um, could we briefly touch on uh, the spy who loved me? Actually, Fleming's spy who loved me. Yeah. I think that's an interesting case, mm-hmm. right? He is, you know, it, I, I don't, I think was it, it was released as a Fleming uh, novel, but there was like a prelude or something that said that he was actually just he found inter- it. 
he found it right of vivian michelle i think was the pen name yeah. that he mm-hmm. yeah um which i find a very i mean when you read it i don't think you can read it without thinking that fleming wrote it i mean it's just <laughs> it's just him but i'm just curious to know what everyone else thinks about that well again that is similar to what you were talking about with pearson before where mm. fleming puts himself forward as a um having found a, a, an actual account of a, of a genuine character, you know, rather than fictionalizing Bond, he is saying that this person actually exists and this is a memoir. So I wonder if we'd get, if, if in another multiverse, we'd have Sebastian Fawkes writing as Ian Fleming as Vivian Michelle in <laughs> <laughs> The Spy Love Me Too. I wanted to round out with one final question for you, which is um, Fleming himself was pretty publicly self-deprecating about his work and the quality of it publicly, mm. right? right? Publicly. Now, internally, I think he was very controlling and possessive and proud of it, um, which if you look at the negotiations of adaptations and how he hated the CBS thing and the rest of it. So he did care. But publicly, he was like, oh, yeah, this is just like throwaway entertainment. And, you know, if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. Yep. Do we believe him? I personally don't. Oh, no, no. He seemed, he seemed very fragile from uh, <laughs> Yeah, he had this whole front, didn't he? Like the whole snobbery thing. Like even when you you know listen to people like Peter Hunt, Terence Young talking about meeting him and stuff, it's like oh, he's a bit, yeah. bit of an ass, isn't he? I feel like it could be both as a as a creator uh, of of a couple of different things. You you can be super precious and proud about what you're doing, but also think that you suck, and uh, and mm-hmm. and, f- and feel like that that what you're doing isn't good, and that, and that even. It's imposter syndrome, right? Even even as you're creating, you're letting yourself down somehow and you think that you're not doing it right. And I think that you see a little bit of that in him trying to – him flirting with the idea of killing off Bond at the end of From Russia with Love. Um, like maybe he was thinking he was wasting his time and he needed to sort of get onto other things. But the, I mean from the texts that I've read, at some point it turned into, well, I need to, I need to do a book a year to keep, to keep, to keep my uh, lifestyle where it needs to be. And I think that point particularly, Phil, if you've read Diamonds Are Forever, there are parts in that book where Bond himself is sort of musing about like, why am I even here? This mission isn't right for me. Like, this is like, it, it, like yeah. genuinely, the character's like having these moments and you can't help but feel like this is Fleming sort of getting halfway through the book and just being like, oh, why did I even go down this route? What, what is this? But I like those reflections. I think, you know, there's a human side. I think all of us on any venture that we've ever done is like, why am I doing this? Like, is this fine? And sometimes, you know, I have a self-deprecating type of humor, especially when I lecture. I mean, I say a critique of my work even before anybody else says it. And maybe Fleming's doing that, being like, yeah, well, you know, it's just, there's there's just throwaway stuff, you know, Mm. just, just saying it before somebody could come out and critique and trying to beat them to the punch. And there are a lot of people in the entertainment industry who sort of have that type of uh, approach to say it first. And then if people like it, then it's like, well, yay inside. Um, Mm. But really just beating them to to, to the negative punch. And it's a a protective mechanism for sure, especially when things matter to you. And you want to know what? Writing for commerce, writing for a paycheck, I don't have anything negative to say about that. We do work for many reasons. Sometimes mm-hmm. we do art for art's sake. Sometimes we write, you know, books professionally just to get the credit for it. You know, sometimes we take on projects because they pay the bills or because they help us have a lifestyle. And so I don't think I look down upon somebody who chooses to go the commercial route. Uh, I think that 
popular culture matters to a lot of people and there's a market for it. So I think, you know, I think work is something that it should be valued. Um, and, and whatever your reasons are, I wouldn't judge you for it. <laughs> That's it. And we do this just for the shiggles. So. <laughs> <laughs> My big paycheck that's not coming. <laughs> yeah, it's whenever, whenever somebody writes us like a three-page email about how they found a fence or with, you know, that I'm there, it's like, yeah, we'll refund your credit card. Gladly. <laughs> this was free. Yeah, you see so. the bursar for a full refund. That's right. <laughs> All right, with that... Um, everybody thanks for joining us this week uh, Phil, Lisa, Calvin and Ben has disappeared so I'll say dun, dun, dun. goodbye for Ben and we'll see you all next time bye Good.